Last week, by way of introducing this section, we walked through seven truths, six really, uh, to understand why Jesus Christ established His church with leaders, elders, with these particular qualifications and roles that we read about here in Titus chapter 1. Uh, if you missed that message, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because it really sets the foundation for thinking about the church and its leadership. But to summarize what we said last week and to refresh our, memory, uh, our memories, God is a God of truth. And Jesus came to testify the truth to uh, testify to the truth. Uh, and I didn't mention this last week, but the Holy Spirit himself is the spirit of truth, uh, Scripture says. Uh, believers are those whose minds have been open to the truth, and the church exists to uphold the truth. But since the currency of the world, the flesh and the devil is lies and deception, those who are leaders in Christ's church must be men whose lives must be aligned with the truth, and their function is to teach and defend the truth. God is all about the truth. Believers ought to be all about the truth. The devil and his followers are all enemies of the truth. So those who lead Christ's church must first and foremost be all about the truth. Now, we drew those principles from almost everywhere in Scripture except for Titus, but we see this theme uh, running through Titus itself. In Verse 1 of Titus 1, one of Paul's ministry purposes was to spread the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. In verse 2, he identifies God as one who cannot lie. In stark contrast to the Cretans who are always liars, it says in verse 12. Elders must be able to refute those who contradict because it says there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, verse 10. And they must be silenced. Their influence must be extinguished. Believers are not to pay attention to those who turn away from the truth, it says in verse 14. In chapter 2, verse 5, our lives should not dishonor the word of God, which is the truth. But in fact, our lives should make the truth attractive. Uh, The way we live should put on display the beauty of God's truth. How to live as an image bearer of God and his design for marriage and family in all relationships, social, economic, and political. If this is true for all believers, it is especially true for the men who desire to be elders in Christ's church. And so with that in mind, follow along as I read all of chapter 1, and then we will get through verses 5 through 8 this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believed, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, 
not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them and reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. When we introduced Titus back in June, you may remember that we looked at how Paul trusted his friend Titus, his disciple really, uh, to do some of the more difficult tasks in ministry. Titus was the one that Paul sent carrying the letter of 2 Corinthians, what we call 2 Corinthians, really his fourth letter to that church, and had him uh, not only read the church, but ensure that his instructions were followed, that the church would no longer be swayed by the false apostles that were trying to deceive and turn the Corinthians away from Paul. That was a very difficult assignment. And here, Paul entrusts Titus with the significant task of establishing the church, or excuse me, the elders in the churches on Crete. And we don't know exactly when Paul and Titus were on the island of Crete together. The scripture doesn't identify that season of Paul's ministry, but most likely it's the latter end of, of Paul's ministry. At some point after they ministered together, traveling around the island, perhaps proclaiming the gospel and pulling people together in local bodies in each city, uh, Paul determined that his ministry, his role in that ministry effort was finished. And so he went off to Nicopolis, as he says at the end of the letter, which is a city on the western shores of modern Greece, which is halfway between Crete and Rome. But while his work was done there on the island, there was still essential tasks to accomplish in order for the churches to be fully established. And so Paul says there in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. This is no small task. As we've even read there in verse 1, or excuse me, in uh, chapter 1, Crete is not exactly a place known for producing men of good character. And so Titus had a, had a difficult task of identifying men who have the character that Paul lists out here for the purpose of being leaders in Christ's church. The elders chosen will determine the future of the church, plain and simple. The elders chosen will determine the future of the church. Choose the right elders, and the church will be strong for many years to come. Choose the wrong elders, and the church will fall apart and falter in short order, and will bring reproach on the name of Christ. The choosing of elders, as is the choosing of any leader, is fraught with danger. There's always the potential that 
the ones doing the choosing are suspected of favoritism. There's the danger that the ones being chosen are judged by the rest as not being the right choice. History, as we know, is replete with accusations of nepotism and bribery and partiality, and those are many times justified because of how leaders are poorly and wrongfully chosen. We all know the phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Meaning, of course, that it's not about your qualifications, it's about your connections. And so to ensure that everyone understands the standards Paul uh, Paul uses, his apostolic authority to lay down those qualifications of elders. It doesn't matter who knows whom. It doesn't matter who is related to whom. It doesn't matter who's been a believer longer or anything like that. Now, Paul does say in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, don't lay your hands on anyone too hastily and thereby share the responsibility for the sins of others. And one of the qualifications in the list in 1 Timothy 3 is that a man should not be a new believer, a new convert, lest that convert turned elder grow, grow in becoming conceited about his rapid rise to leadership. But aside from that, what matters is character. What matters is character. Does his life align with the truth? That is the issue. There is necessary testing that must take place to ensure that a man is qualified. And that's indicated by the phrase in verse 6, if you see it, if any man is above reproach. And then again in verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. To be above reproach means to be blameless, to be free from the accusations of others. In other words, it's not enough for a man just to say, hey, I'm qualified. It's not enough for the elders to observe a man on Sunday mornings, let's say, and see him interacting with others and say, yeah, that man is qualified based on what we've seen on Sunday mornings. What must happen is the man's family, the community of faith, and to some degree, even the community outside must be brought to testify to the man's qualification. So the task that Titus has before him is to find men who have a godly reputation according to these qualifications and who are gifted by the Spirit to fulfill the roles described in verse 9, which we'll look at next week. Before we get into the qualifications, it's also critical to say that Titus was not to look for one man in each city. Rather, he was to appoint elders, plural, in each city, singular. Or more literally, he was to appoint elders according to a city. The preposition there is not the preposition in, appoint elders in each city, but according to a city. The likely intention there is that the dynamics within the city should have some kind of impact on the number of elders. Perhaps it would be accurate to say the larger the city and thus the more numbers uh, of people in the church, the more number of elders there should be. Or smaller cities with fewer believers should have fewer elders. But whatever the case, there should be a plurality of elders, multiple men who shoulder the burden of oversight and shepherding as as Christ's under shepherds. This list and the similar list in 1 Timothy 3 stand as the universal qualifications that are essential for those who would provide leadership in Christ's church. 
doesn't matter when in history you live. It doesn't matter where geographically you live. These are the qualifications. And I strongly believe that it is better to have fewer elders, if not at all, rather than to have unqualified elders. This is why, as a church, we must be committed to training up and equipping men to fulfill this ministry, because the more qualified elders a church has, the stronger that church will be. So what I want to do today is walk through each of these, not just by defining each one, that could go by quickly, and most of them are self-evident anyway, you could probably define these terms yourselves off the top of your head, but what I want to do is demonstrating how elders are to be men of the truth. I want us to think about at least an example of one lie that must be rejected in order for these qualifications to be true in one's life, and one truth that must be lived out in order for that qualification to be true. Again, they're just example lies and truths, not by any stretch exhaustive of all that one must believe and what one must reject. And then one final note is that as we walk through these, I'll describe each character trait as traits that every believer should have as part of their life. Lies that we should all reject and truths that we should all live by. These are not traits that Paul lists here that are for elders only and not for anybody else. Rather, this is standard Christian living that is expected of all believers, but it's required of men who would be elders. Now, there are 14 qualifications listed here, but one of them, the last one that opens up verse 9, is so intimately tied to the function and role of elders that we're going to save that for next week. So for today, we're going to walk through 13 character traits that should be true of all believers, especially elders. And this is going to go by fast. And I had to exercise extreme self-control in putting together this message, I promise you. This almost became a series on marriage, and then a series on parenting, and the rest. But look at verse 6. The first qualification And the second are the husband of one wife and having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. These first two qualifications are set forth as a kind of prerequisite. You can see kind of a distinction between verse 6 and verse 7 where he repeats the, uh, the indication that they need to be above reproach. It's almost as if Paul is saying here the first place you need to look for a man to see if he is going to be qualified as an elder is not in his Sunday school class that he's teaching. It's not in the workplace where he is working. It's in the home. And that begins with his marriage and with his parenting, if he is married and if he is a parent. This qualification to be a husband of one wife does not establish marriage itself as a qualification, but rather that if one is married, he is to be a faithful husband. If a man is single, there must still be elements of his life that demonstrate similar qualities. For example, if, if a young or if a single man struggles with pornography, he is not demonstrating faithfulness to the Lord or to his future wife. Or if a man is known as a ladies' man, always taking different women out on dates and flirting with them, but never demonstrating seriousness about marriage 
or commitment or caring for the hearts of women, that would be disqualifying. This qualification to be a husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, speaks to seriousness about honoring the Lord in one's relationship to women in general, for sure, but most especially to one's wife. One fundamental lie that must be rejected is that women exist to bring men pleasure. Let me say that again. One fundamental lie that must be rejected is that women exist to bring men pleasure. Lust, pornography, fornication, adultery, abuse, and any other form of sexual sin committed in the heart or with the body is based on this lie that is promoted by the world. The flesh, the devil, and the world want us to believe that women exist for the pleasure of men. Which you wouldn't always think when you hear about women's rights and trying to promote women's dignity, but the world is self-contradictory in this regard. This lie denies that women are made in the image of God. This lie denies that women are precious in God's sight and must be loved and cherished and protected by fathers and husbands and friends and husbands. This lie rejects God's design for marriage and relationships, thereby destroying the nucleus of society with a deadly cancer. Men, if the Spirit of Christ is in you and there is a struggle in your heart, in this, make every effort to apply His strength to root out every manifestation of this lie. Rather, we must live by the truth that it is our responsibility to love our wife as Christ loved the church exclusively and sacrificially. This is the calling of every husband according to Ephesians 5. Marriage is designed to put on display the redemptive relationship between Christ and the church. Jesus, though he is the head of the church, did not lord it over the church, does not overlord, overlord it. Uh, over the church. Rather, he, he gave himself, his own body and blood for the washing and the cleansing, for the benefit of the church. And he did that exclusively for the church and for no one else. He only has one bride. And so we as husbands are to imitate him. We are to love the woman that God has given us exclusively and sacrificially with the aim of seeing them flourish. An elder must be committed to being that kind of husband. The second qualification you see there in the second half of the verse is that he must have children who believe, as it is written, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Uh, the word believe, I don't think, is the best translation. It's better translated by the New King James and others as faithful. It's the adjective pistos in the Greek which can mean believing, or it can mean faithful, depending on the context. Remember that phrase that Jesus said in one of his parables, well done, good and faithful servant? It's the same word. It's also used as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2, where it says those who have believers as their masters. Again, same word. The context always determines which meaning is intended. And I think there are two evidences that Paul intends faithful here, first, he qualifies the term immediately by defining 
what faithfulness is on the part of a child, that they are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. In other words, the kind of faithfulness children need to have is that they cannot be accused of a lifestyle of sin. They cannot be accused of rebelling against the authorities in their life. The the second evidence is that in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul, again, lists the qualifications for elders, he puts the qualification with respect to children this way, that an elder must have his children under control with all dignity. So he doesn't even use the term. Instead, he defines the kind of character his the children should have. They should be under control, um, under the authority of the elder. The core principle, as Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy, is that if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? That's the issue. He needs to manage his household. He needs to love his wife and care for his children. It's not a matter of whether a man's children have professed faith in Christ but whether a man has demonstrated the ability to raise up his children in a way that as long as they're under his authority in the home, they submit to him. Now, the lie that we all, and especially elders, must reject is that the raising of my children is somebody else's responsibility. Our culture believes it's society's responsibility to raise children, and this is manifested when you hear who gets blamed when there are problems in children's lives. And this mentality can bleed over into the church as well. Sometimes parents assume it's the children's ministry responsibility and then the youth ministry's responsibility and then the college ministry's responsibility to not raise their children in the basic sense, but at least in the spiritual sense. As parents, we must live by the truth that our children are our primary ministry. Our children are our primary ministry. Scripture is abundantly clear that uh, in giving fathers and mothers the responsibility to their children um, in the discipline, raising their children in, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. For those of us who have children, parenting is really a approving ground for pastoring. There are very few things in ministry that aren't experienced in parenting. Uh, Evangelism, discipleship, training, teaching, conflict resolution, (laughs) comforting, encouraging, admonishing. All of those are key aspects of shepherding in God's flock, and they are all essential aspects of parenting as well. Potential elders must be tested regarding their home life. I was reminded by a testimony that somebody sent me this week of the importance of talking to the wife, and in some cases, maybe even the children, and asking direct and personal questions to evaluate a man's character as it relates to him as a husband and as a father. We tend to assume the best about a man, and that's not necessarily bad, but it's sadly not uncommon for a man to have disqualifying character traits that only the wife and the children know. And they're never brought to light because hard questions aren't asked and the family is afraid to raise them. So for the sake of the church and for the sake of a potential elder's family, it's imperative that we do the difficult work of asking questions and carrying out careful investigation. 
Again, so much we could say about that, but for now, we can say that once he has addressed the matter of the home life, Paul goes on in verse 7, and he identifies five negative attributes. What should not characterize believers, and especially elders. What should not characterize them. The first one, as you can see there, is that an overseer must not be self-willed. Self-willed. A self-willed person is really one who cares about no one but themselves. They are arrogant in thinking about their desires. Uh, They believe their desires are supreme. They are stubborn in that they don't see how imposing their will on others brings harm or can bring harm to others. Spiritually, a self-willed person believes that their thoughts are higher than God's thoughts and their ways are better than God's ways. And that's manifested by a disregard for God's Word. Those who don't know God's Word or those who don't look to God's Word for discerning His will are self-willed. And so it's imperative that we reject the lie that my desires are more important than God's. Everyone has opinions. Everyone has preferences. And everyone thinks that their opinions and preferences are the right and the best ones, right? We all have thoughts about what is the best thing to do and the best way to do it. But we are not the captain of our souls. Christ is. And when we sin in trying to get our way or when we don't get our way, we are usurping Christ's authority over our lives. We must live by the truth that God's will supersedes mine and I am Christ's slave, as we saw in verse 1. The church is not a human enterprise. We are not subject to the will of a CEO or to shareholders. All believers are under the direct authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elders, listen, elders should be the chief submitters. Elders are to lead the church in submission to Christ, and that should manifest in every area of their life. They are not to be self-willed. The next qualification there in verse 6 is that an elder is not to be quick-tempered. Quick-tempered. This is actually the only time this word is used in the New Testament, but it simply means to not be given to anger. A quick-tempered person is one who allows common irritations to boil over in a split second. Rather than being inclined to solve problems and express kindness and gentleness, this person is inclined to wrath. According to James 4.1, the source of such an attitude is, I want what I want, I must get what I want, I deserve to get what I want, and so I will crush others to get what I want, or if I don't, get my way. We must reject the lie that we deserve to get our way. That is a lie. Being self-willed and being quick-tempered go hand in hand. When the self-willed person doesn't get their way, they turn to anger. Beloved, there is not a person in this room or in this world who deserves to get their way. It doesn't matter what position you have, you know, in the military 
those who have authority, those who hold rank, can say in their flesh, I deserve to be obeyed because of my rank. No, you don't. No one deserves to get their way. What we all deserve is the wrath of God. And when we presume that we deserve to get our way, we are denying that we deserve the wrath of God. And we are setting ourselves above God. And we're saying other people deserve our wrath when we don't get our way. We must reject that lie. Instead, we must live by the truth of God's sovereignty over my circumstances. God's sovereignty over my circumstances. When someone does something that is at cross purposes with my will and my desires, when someone over us in authority does something that we don't like, or when someone under our authority doesn't submit to our authority, or life throws us a curveball that messes up our plans, do you know what that means? It means that God's sovereign decreed will is not our will, (laughs) is at odds with our will. And His will cannot be thwarted. And so when His will is different than our will, His revealed will in Scripture is that we respond with trust and Christ-like character, not with prideful anger. Well, not addicted to wine is the next attribute there in verse 7. Not addicted to wine. In ancient times, as many of you know, wine was more diluted than it was than it is today, and it would take longer to reach that state of inebriation when drinking wine. And it is true that it would be sinful for elders to practice drunkenness in their lives and not have clarity of mind uh, in, in the fulfilling of their responsibilities, but I don't think that's primarily what Paul is thinking of here, because he could have just said that they shouldn't be drunkards. I I think a larger concern has to do with how one responds to the challenges of life. Let me put it this way. As believers, we must reject the lie that substances can comfort the soul. We must reject the lie that substances can comfort the soul. Life is difficult. Work is stressful. Governments are oppressive. Pressures are weighty. Relationships are painful. And so our world says, hey, just take, a jet, take, a, take the edge off. Have a glass or two, or maybe three if it's been a particularly hard day. Put some liquor in your drink, and that'll help you relax. That'll give you some comfort. The problem is, the problems are still there as soon as the effects of the alcohol wear off. Substances cannot comfort the soul. We must live by the truth that we are to go to God, in, who is the God of all comfort, with our stress and distress. We are to go to the God of all comfort with our stress and distress. Psalm 18 verse 6 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of His temple And my cry for help came before him into his ears. When we go to the Lord with our sorrows and with our difficulties, we find comfort. Psalm 119 verse 50 says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. In the course of life outside the church, in the course of ministry inside the church, 
physical weakness and discouragement, feeling weighed down by the sins of others or by the pressures of ministry can be intense. We must turn to the Lord and find refreshment in Christ rather than turning to alcohol or other substances. The next attribute there in verse 7 is that potential elders must not be pugnacious. Pugnacious. This means to be a brawler, a fighter, a striker. A pugnacious person is not just quick-tempered. He uses his fists to resolve disputes. This is a man given to violence. Uh, The lie that leads to this manner of life is that vengeance is mine, and it's up to me to make things right. When a pugnacious person perceives a wrong, even if it's a legitimate one, they believe in their heart that they are responsible to correct that wrong and to punish the perceived evildoers and put them in their place. After all, if, if they don't do that, who will? Well, those who know God, on the other hand, live by the truth that vengeance is the Lord and He will make things right. Vengeance is the Lord's. Physical fights are an act of taking revenge, punishing your opponent. But we're instructed in Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And this truth was lived out and modeled to us by Jesus in his final hours, as it's written in 1 Peter 2.23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus didn't fight for his rights. He didn't attack his enemies. No, he left judgment and vengeance to the Lord. And so that should characterize all believers, especially elders who sometimes find themselves involved in strong disagreements and on the receiving end of accusations. The final negative attribute there in verse 7 is that every elder must not be fond of sordid gain. Not be fond of sordid gain. That is to say, he must not be a lover of money as manifested by the willingness to obtain it through dishonest means. This can range from expecting members to do things without charge to getting involved in questionable investments and, of course, embezzlement. The love of money, as we read in 1 Timothy 6, is the root of all sorts of evil. And if a man loves money, he will open himself to a variety of sins in his personal life and in the church. As those who are citizens of heaven, we must reject the lie that money brings happiness. The world, the flesh, and the devil try to convince us that if we only had more money, life would be easier. Somehow all the conflicts in life would go away. Our children would never be bored again. Our neighbors would be jealous of us instead of us being jealous of them. The love of money and the desire to obtain it by any means necessary demonstrates that one is living for the world and not for God and his kingdom. So we must live by the truth that godliness is great gain with contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Again, we saw this in 1 Timothy 6, where Paul writes, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. A contented heart 
is one that looks for peace and joy in the Lord, not in earthly possessions. An eternal perspective causes us to realize that it is better to store up treasures in heaven than on earth. And in Christ, we have truly everything that we need. Well, in verse 8 then, Paul turns to six positive attributes, and we'll just walk through these briefly. First, an elder must be hospitable. Hospitable. Literally, the word means to be a friend of strangers. But being hospitable is not just being a friend to those that you've never met before. In 1 Peter 4, 9, Peter commands believers to be hospitable toward one another, which brings that command into the life of the church where you're practicing it with those who know each other. A hospitable person uses their resources and often their home to minister to anyone, stranger or friend. They're not partial to only spend their time with their family and their very closest friends, but they welcome anyone into the home and are generous with their resources for the purpose of showing the love of Christ. The lie that must be rejected here is that my home and my possessions are for my comfort and my pleasure. Some of you come from cultures where this is not the case, but in modern Americana, our homes are viewed as our refuge, our place of escape from the pressures of work and society and even our neighbors. Uh, We can walk into the home, we can close the door and thereby close ourselves off from what is going on in the world. My home is my castle, we might say. And it's where we relax and enjoy comforts of life to the point where we don't want anyone to invade our privacy. But as believers, we must live by the truth that the provisions God gives us, yes, they are for our own blessing and enjoyment. Again, we read that in 1 Timothy 6, but also for the benefit of others. It's not wrong to enjoy privacy and comfort in your home. That's not the problem. But that needs to be balanced with a recognition that all that I have is from God. And I am a steward. And as a steward, my home and my possessions are to be used for the blessing of others. The early church had no buildings of their own, and so churches met in homes. We understand that. But they didn't, they didn't just meet in homes for corporate worship on Sunday morning. They met in their homes regularly for fellowship. They shared meals together. They ministered to each other. They studied scripture together. They hosted guests from out of town. And that has remained true throughout history. Some believers have hospitality ingrained in them because of their culture, but all believers are called to be hospitable, especially those who are elders. The next attribute there in verse 8 is that elders are to love what is good. This is a rare term, only appears here in the New Testament, and it doesn't occur in the Greek translation of the Old Testament either. But it's a straightforward term with a clear meaning, just one who loves what is good. And we can speak of good in the moral sense of righteousness and holiness. A man is good. He is a good man because he upholds a moral standard from God's perspective. Uh, We can speak of good in the practical sense of something that's beneficial and useful. Uh, A book is good because it benefits the mind. Uh, We can also speak of good in the qualitative sense. A product is good because it's well-made. I think Paul really is identifying here good in the moral and practical senses. That is, we are to delight in things that are upright and things that are excellent. The lie we must reject 
is that whatever appeals to my flesh is desirable. What determines a good or desirable thing to our flesh is not an objective standard of morality or how things can be beneficial to others, but rather what my sin-cursed flesh thinks will bring it happiness and pleasure. If it feels pleasurable, our flesh thinks it must be good, and that is a lie. Believers must live by the truth that whatever reflects God's truth and His character is desirable. I mean, one of the signs of the new birth is that when you get saved, things that used to have no interest to you are all of a sudden delightful and desirable. Before regeneration, we delighted in evil, but after salvation, we find delight in God's Word. As it says, Psalm 119, verse 47, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. Men who would be elders must be characterized by delighting in things that reflect goodness in terms of God's standard of morality and goodness in terms of what is beneficial in God's economy. Well, the next attribute in verse 8 is sensible. Sensible in the New American Standard. It's, I think, self-control in the ESV. We'll have a lot more to say about this term because Paul uses it actually four times in chapter 2 to describe the character of believers of every age. But for now, understand that this term means to have a self-controlled mind in how you think about the truth. Excuse me, how you think about the world. To have a self-controlled mind in how you think about the world. It is to have a sound mind, a mind that is grounded in God's truth as you look out and respond to the world around you. The way one interprets and responds to the things of the world is tempered by truth. That's what it means to be sensible. And so we must reject the lie that my instincts define truth and wisdom. Thanks to social media, more than ever, people have been thinking that Uh, The truth is based on my extremely limited information, that I can determine the truth quickly. We live in a world where everybody is somehow an an investigative reporter. But the internet didn't cause this, it just made it easier for us to do what we typically do, and that is to think that we know more than we actually know. We are quick to trust our intellectual instincts. But it is a lie that our instincts tend to be accurate when informed by such limited information. And so, as those whose minds have been open to the truth, we must live by the truth that our mind must be controlled by the Spirit. Our mind must must be controlled by the Spirit. We must be, as James said, slow to speak and quick to listen. Our instincts must be reined in. Our thoughts must be filtered through the lens of Scripture and a biblical worldview. And that takes time and thoughtfulness. An elder must be sensible. Just is the next attribute listed here. Just. This is the idea of being fair and equitable. Because of sin, we all tend to be partial to ourselves and uh, biased in various ways. But God is not partial, and He calls us to render judgments according to His standards. Believers must reject the lie that inequity and injustice can be resolved by inequity and injustice. This is a massive lie promoted at every level of society today. The injustices of the past and the sins of the present cannot be fixed or absolved by reversing the tables and committing new acts of injustice uh, 
and inequity. In a world full of injustice, we must not buy into the lies of the world on how to respond to the sins of others. Instead, we must live by the truth that partiality is a sin and we must apply God's standard equally. Elders are often in a position to help parties who are in conflict and it's imperative that they are able to evaluate situations and discern what is true and how to equitably deal with difficult situations. Scripture commands us not to be partial to the poor or to the rich and bias should have no place in the church. To be a Christ-like leader, a man must be known for being just. The next attribute is that potential elders must be devout. Devout. This is the idea of being pious or holy. And in this context, it seems best to understand the term in terms of one's private life. Most of the attributes that we've talked about are things that you can see and observe in a man. And that's certainly true of this term in some way. But this points us to life lived at the level of the heart. Uh, Godliness is not just one's outward behavior. It begins as devotion in the heart. And so we must reject the lie that you can separate your private life from your public life. Many sins are committed in the shadows, in the privacy of one's home or in a place where one is least visible. One of the most common lies of temptation is that you can keep this secret. No one will find out. Many convince themselves of the lie that the things that they do in secret won't affect any other aspect of their life. Some go far as to say that they can isolate certain sins from their relationship to God so they can have a good relationship to God. They can be in prayer. They can be studying Scripture. They can be serving all the while harboring secret sin. And that is a lie. We must live by the truth that your private life is the greatest reflection of your relationship with God. Your private life is the greatest reflection of your relationship with God. The quality of your relationship with God is not based on what others think of you. It's not based on how much time or money you give to the church. It's not based on how long you pray or your ability to teach others. The greatest reflection of your life and your relationship to God is measured by your heart's devotion to Him. We can deceive others by our words and our actions, but God knows our heart. Do you fear Him? Do you love Him? Do you desire Him? The answer to those questions will reveal how devout you really are. And then the final attribute there in verse 8 is self-control. Self-control. This refers to having one's desires or impulses and emotions under control, to really have power over yourself. A self-controlled person is not ruled by the whims and the compulsions of their body and desires. Rather, they have learned to say no, or that's enough, or not right now. We must reject the lie that what feels right, my impulses and emotions, must be right. This is our culture, isn't it? Uh, It's our culture because that is the flesh. And when you hold to an evolutionary view of life, what comes naturally to the body must be what the body needs. We have instincts, and those instincts have been trained through evolution, so that must be what we should do. But humans don't need evolution to believe this lie. 
we've, we've always trusted the instincts of the flesh and run with them. And that's why immorality and murder and gluttony and conflict have defined the whole of human history. But as those who've been set free from the power of sin, we must believe the truth that the Spirit empowers us over the flesh. The Spirit empowers us over the flesh. We are no longer enslaved to our lusts and desires and impulses. We have God's power dwelling in us, helping us to live out God's desires and spiritual impulses. Rather than being endlessly consumers of the flesh, for the flesh, we can make sacrifices now that free us to serve the Lord without the entanglements of the flesh. Well, there you have it. 13 ways in which the truth should be lived out by every believer. Now, obviously, it's true that every believer is in a different place in life. Some of you have been believers for months. Some of you have been believers for 70 years. But these are attributes that should be increasingly true of those who have come to a knowledge of the truth. These character qualities are not random and arbitrary. They are really reflections of the Lord Jesus Christ. He and he alone could live out the truth perfectly. His character was impeccable and irreproachable. And because God is working in his people to conform us to the image of Christ, these qualities should be increasingly true for God's people. But they must be especially evident in the lives of elders who are under shepherds of the great shepherd. Now, elders aren't and can't be perfect, but we are to be exemplary. They are to lead the church in being doers of the word and not hearers only. Elders are to be models of consistent Christianity so that we don't bring reproach on the name of Christ and convey a false message of the power of the gospel to transform lives. I just want to close with this admonition. Men, don't let this list scare you away from pursuing leadership in Christ's church. If these qualities are not true of you, then repent and ask God for his help so that you would pursue these qualities. Wives love to follow husbands who have these qualities. Children gladly submit to fathers who have these qualities. And the church of Jesus Christ will flourish when the leaders bear a striking resemblance to their Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, as we walk through a, a list like this as quickly as we have, um, it is so easy to get discouraged because we all know our frailties, we know our weaknesses, we know our imperfections. And we thank you that though you do call us to holiness, you don't expect and demand and throw us away and leave us useless if we don't reach that perfection. But uh, you are gracious and forgiving and you empower us to grow into the image of Christ. May we be a church where not only the elders meet these qualifications by your grace, but where men rise to the challenge and women uh, conform to the image of Christ and where he is lifted high in how we live. May we all be doers of the truth for the sake of Christ. Amen.